According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 15. And I hope you brought your thinking cap with you this morning because we got some difficult things to deal with. We'll uh, try to knock it out in a single class and then we can move on to easier stuff next week. But uh, we're looking at Sheol and Abaddon in uh, verse 11. And so you really are plunging into the depths of some angelic conflict material there with the references to Sheol and Abaddon. And ultimately, too, when we deal with uh, the the, uh, sin unto death, you know, Paul even speaks about the sin unto death. They're handing somebody over to Satan, you know, for angelic conflict administered uh, discipline. Uh, and the, the purpose for which, of course, is to save their soul and, and, and to try to salvage something in the judgment seat of Christ so that it's not all corrupted and not all thrown away. So uh, grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. And that uh, we're dealing with <clears throat> the issues there. All right, so before we get started, let's take a moment for a silent prayer and uh, Two moments. Let's pray extra hard for uh, some wisdom here today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning uh, unworthy. None of us deserves to be here, but in your grace we're saved. In your grace we are positionally united with your Son. And you love your Son, Father, and you love us. And so we're eager this morning to feast upon your word, and we want to grow, and uh, we know that some of these things are pretty deep, Father, so we need your Holy Spirit to teach us, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so in the outline of chapter 15, we are dealing with main point nine, temporal divine discipline, temporal. Temporal means within the boundaries of time. Temporal is the contrast to eternal. Right, So we're within the bounds of time. Temporal divine discipline, even up to the sin unto death, are the particular privileges of humanity. Thank God that he disciplines us. Thank God that he does so. Okay, Angels, by the way, are no longer under divine discipline in the temporal sense. Right, They're locked into their, their angelity future. They're already locked in either as elect angels like Gabriel and Michael, the good guys, and then the fallen angels, Satan and Abaddon and the fallen angels, Beelzebub, all right, they're locked in on the bad side. It's not possible for Satan to get saved today or any fallen angel. It's not, likewise, it's not possible for Gabriel or Michael or any of the good angels for them to uh, become fallen angels. They're locked in. So uh, we understand that they had their, their time frame before Adam and that's finished and now they are locked in. They're already in their, uh, their I call it the angelity future. Okay, they're already there. Uh, we're, we're still in time. We haven't reached eternity future yet for humanity, but the angels already have reached their eternity future for angels. So that's why I call it angelity, angelity future. They're already there, locked in, just as uh, we will be when, when we get there. And so, um, so they're not under discipline the way we are. Okay. And uh, Gabriel, by the way, would never come under divine discipline either. God's not going to discipline Gabriel for being, uh, you know, uh, recalcitrant in his angelic walk. He is locked into his glorious eternity already. 
But no, divine discipline is our mark as children. And, and so last week we spent quite a bit of time in Hebrews 12 and we realized, and I'll just quickly remind us that if you are without discipline, you are a bastard. You are illegitimate. And this is um, the, the nature of the description here. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, if you are without discipline, that's verse 8, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. This is our privilege as sons, that the Father claims us and the Father loves us and the Father disciplines us. The idea of an illegitimate child is the son that is not claimed by the Father. The Father says, that's not my son. That that mongrel, that bastard, that, I mean, there's a harsh language for an illegitimate child that's born outside of the covenant faithfulness of one man and one woman in, in marriage, okay? And, and it's more than just a public shaming. We're not talking about a social faux pas. We're not talking about a, a public shaming whereby, you know, an unwed mother has a, has a shame or, or uh, there's a social stigma that's attached to, to certain things. It's so much bigger than that. All right, because it centers on the generations of humanity that are being brought up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. See, or not, as the case may be. And legitimacy is is it centers on um, the the marriage covenant. It centers on inheritance. It centers on all of these principles that uh, that we know. Anyway, this is uh, what we have here: forsaking. Realize it's like uh, apostasy studies. Only believers can forsake. Only believers can commit apostasy. If you're never saved to begin with, you cannot commit apostasy because you can't fall away from the faith. You can't depart from sound doctrine. Are we clear on that? We're going to have more apostasy studies in the book of Hebrews because apostasy is departing from the, the, the Christian walk departing from the experiential Christian walk. It's not losing salvation, but it's departing from the Christian walk. And we're going to be clear on that as well. So when you commit apostasy, if you decide to walk in reversionism, to walk in darkness, if you decide to uh, to quit going to church and you hate the Bible and you hate God and you're just going to go out there and uh, and, and become a you know a pagan along with uh, all the other unbelievers, all right? You don't lose your salvation, but you are in apostasy. Okay, and that's what we got to see. That's what the warnings are about in Hebrews. Don't fall away from the faith and uh, and the aspects there. So Azav is an abandonment, a forsaking. You are abandoning and yet you, uh, you're, you're one that is expected to show loyalty. You're expected to show chesed and instead you are abandoning. There are things that you should depart from. Parents, when you uh, are married to your spouse, paganism is okay to separate there, and sin. And uh, we ran out of time before we could look at those, but we, we all know Genesis 2.24, right? For this reason a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to one another. The two shall become one flesh. And it is significant. I think that's not an accident that God selected Azav to be the verb there uh, uh, that is normally a forsaking. Normally it's an abandonment term. And, that, and if you think about it, when a child leaves home, okay, it's not a cruel abandonment and it's not a, it's not a, a, a wicked forsaking. It is a sanctified abandonment. It is a sanctified forsaking. Because it's more than just a, a change of residency at the post office. You're not just simply changing your mailing address. You are assuming generational accountability before God. 
you are coming out from under the protective umbrella of parental grace, <laughs> and you are now standing before the Lord in your own generation as a, as a man and a woman in Christ, and and standing before the Lord as adult sons and and daughters in, in full accountability, and that's a, that's a significant departure, and we want to encourage that and, and recognize that, and we want to preach that in our premarital counseling too, so that we don't. Uh, you know, so that when you enter into marriage, you know, you don't bring mom with you. You don't bring, <laughs> you don't bring, that's the worst thing that can happen if, by, on, you know, well, my mother never did it that way. Oh my goodness. Okay. You want to talk about an instant uh, fight or explosion in the, in the things there. Name that tune, right? <laughs> All right. Hey, it happened to me two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and I'm still embarrassed, so. We, we can show grace one to another. How about that? Parents, go ahead and forsake them. Uh, in a sanctified way, okay, you are, but, but ultimately, you are emancipated. You are spiritually, uh, you still want to honor them, you still want to love them, you still want to fulfill those things, but you're no longer bound by their spiritual authority. You now have to answer before the Lord. And that's uh, significant there. Uh, Ruth 1 and Ruth 2. I think we're familiar with these as well. Uh, Joshua judges Ruth. And if you get to 1 Samuel, you've gone too far. But uh, and it's it's interesting here. Naomi wants her wants Ruth to stay in Moab. And uh, of course, Ruth wants no part of that. What's she gonna do in Moab? Um, she's a believer now, you know. She she loves Yahweh. Yahweh is her God. Why she wants to live with the Jewish people, and um, and yet when uh, Naomi is trying to say, you know, go return each of you to uh, your, her mother's house, and uh, Ruth wants no part of that. And so when you read it here in verse fourteen, they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. And uh, when she, then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Okay? And so this is, um, she is abandoning. She is forsaking. And uh, she's forsaking her own God, her own people, the Moabite people. They have terrible gods anyway, Hamash and Molech and those guys. And, 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 but besides, she's a believer now. She wants to, to, to serve Yahweh. And Yahweh has a covenant people. And the covenant people have a covenant land. And that covenant land is where His presence is, see. And so she wants to identify there. This is an appropriate forsaking and uh, and that and it gets restated in chapter two, verse eleven. Boaz replied to her, "All that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me. How you forsook, left, abandoned, Azav, how you abandoned your um, people." Right? I lost my place here. What am I reading? Verse eleven fully reported to me how you left your father and your mother and the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. And anyway, we know how the book of Ruth turns out. He ends up marrying her. There's you know happily ever after kind of a thing. She's in the line of Christ. She gives birth to, I mean, she becomes the, 
the great-grandmother of, of David in that respect. Okay. By the way, there's a legend. You know what happened to Orpah after this? Orpah stayed in the land of Moab and uh, birthed a Nephilim with a, with a fallen angel and uh, was the, became the mother of Goliath. And that's the, can't prove it biblically, but that is the legend, that is the tradition related to the Nephilim origins of, uh, of uh, Goliath. So anyway, I don't think it's true, but it's a, it's a, it is a curious Jewish legend and it goes back, it's older than, than the time of Christ. I mean, it goes back a long, long time in, uh, among the, the rabbis. So you can uh, forsake your parents when you marry and step into your own generational accountability. You can forsake, forsake paganism uh, at any time. And uh, when you name the name of Christ and decide you're going to identify with, the, with uh, fellow believers. And then, of course, sin needs to be forsaken. In Proverbs 8, 13, or 28, 13. And, and write this one down. Write down this verse and connect it to 1 John 1, 9. And any time you ever confess your sins... Add to the First John one nine content the Proverbs twenty eight thirteen content, okay, and synthesize those passages together. Otherwise, uh, I, I think there's a lot of confession that's not real confession in uh, in in any definition in any in any sense. Because <clears throat> I, I, mean, I think we all know First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, and I love that. But we've got to make sure that our confession is a real confession, that we're truly homologeo, agreeing with God in what we say and what we affirm in our sins. That it is a full confession, it is not just an admission. It's not just, uh, you know, you're owning up to what you did, you're, 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 you're copping a plea and saying, yep, Lord, I did that, you know. That's not confession, that's admission. And He doesn't want us just to admit our sins, He wants us to confess our sins. And that confession requires agreement with God. Here in Proverbs 28 it says, confess and forsake. And so to me, this is, uh, this is the fullness of what homologeo uh, details in, in 1 John 1, 9. He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper. See, if you think you've gotten getting away with it, if you're deferring your confession by hiding it, covering it up, and see, I'm only going to admit what, what they can prove. <laughs> I'm only going to confess when it's exposed. I'm only going to admit it if, if, if I have no other choice. See, David did that for the full nine-month pregnancy, didn't he? And, uh, and yet uh, then he was exposed for what it was. And uh, so he who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find conf- uh, compassion. And so this takes the confession and it links it to the verb azav for forsaking. We want to confess and forsake. And I would submit to you that um, if you're going to try to define things carefully in, in 1 John 1, 9, that if you confess your sins with every intention of repeating that sin tomorrow, uh, then you're not confessing because you're not confessing and forsaking. And that he, is, he has no obligation to be faithful and just to forgive you your sin when you fully intend to do it again tomorrow. Okay? In, uh, in an aspect, you know, you've got a, you've got a regular appointment for whatever. Uh, you've, got a, you've got a regularly scheduled sin, right? You have a regular scheduled sin because whatever, you're a married man and you've got a mistress and Thursday is your night to meet with 
whatever. And so you commit this adultery, you commit this sin, and then as you're driving back home to your wife, like Peter Strzok or whatever, you're driving back home to your wife and you think you can First John 1, 9 in the car as you're driving home, well, guess what? Because, yeah, you've, you've got, you're not repentant, you're not confessing, you're not saying the same thing about your sin that God's saying about your sin, and you're not forsaking, and next Thursday's already booked. What do you, I mean, you're, you're ready to do it again next week, and it's an ongoing sin, and, uh, and, and so, you know, the doctrine of rebound, I love it, but it's, it's abused, and we want to make sure that, that uh, the confession includes the forsaking, and that's why I like how Proverbs 28, 13 spells that out. All right. Now, what do we fall away from? What do we fall away from? Uh, forsaking the way, we're told. What is the way? Clearly, the way is the born-again way of life. Sometimes it's called the Christian way of life, but um, then people get mad if I use the Christian way of life for anything that's pre-Pentecost, pre-church age. And I, I still think it's the Christian way of life because it's based upon the anticipation of the coming Christ, the coming anointed one. But regardless, okay, if you prefer the born-again way of life, do that, okay? Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. So even before the church age, we, we, we recognize born again is a real issue. And... Uh, I don't have any problem with the born-again way of life or the Christian way of life. It's called by various names. It's called the uh, the path of justice or the paths of justice or the ways of justice. It's called the uh, the uh, path or the way of the upright. It's called the path of life or the way of life. It's called the way of righteousness or the way of the righteous. Okay, And so whether you want to call it a way or a path or a walk, whatever you want to call it, it is a course. It is a or a race. You want to call it a race? Won't run with endurance the race that's set before us. Whatever you want to call it, though, give it a label, give it a name, and make sure it's a name that expresses motion. <laughs> okay? Ongoing, progress, traveling, journeying, right? There's there's places to go and things to do. It is a race, it is a journey, it is a it is a path. And um it's not a, it's not a, a, a chair where you just sit there, okay? It's not a stationary kind of a, a thing. It is a, it is a motion uh, circumstance. And so you'll notice this. And, 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 I, and I'm thankful that, uh, you know, there is such a variety in the, in the Scriptures that keeps us from just being enslaved to one particular term. Um, it can be expressed in a, in a variety of ways. Proverbs 2.8 This is why we need to study the Word of God. The Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. And He preserves the way of His godly ones. So here in the poetry is called paths in one part and it's called the way in another part. And it just centers on our our path, on our way, on on the course of our life. Okay? And that's what it's about. We all have this journey. We're all on this journey. Even the New Agers and the unbelievers will use this kind of language. We're all on a journey. We're all on a path. Okay? And it's true as far as it goes, and then they take it bad places when they deny the Scriptures. Um, so here it's called the paths of justice, or the way of His godly ones. It's the way. 
And that was one of the early terms for, for biblical Christianity too, by the way. They called themselves the way. They had realized that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life, and that, that after Pentecost there's a whole new way now to conduct yourself in, in temporal life. And uh, they called themselves the way. And I like that. In Proverbs uh, 17, 23, again, justice is, uh, is the highlight. Mishpat. A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. The ways of justice. All right. So there's paths, there's ways. Sometimes justice is what's emphasized. Sometimes uprightness is what's emphasized. And such as Proverbs 2.13. Discretion will guard you, understanding will watch over you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things from those who leave the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness. And if you noticed it or not, there's a second set of paths you can get on. If you're not on the paths of righteousness, you could be on the the paths of of unrighteousness, the ways of darkness. You could be on the way of evil. Okay, And that too is a progression. Notice there's motion there too. Nothing static in the Christian walk, all right? You're either advancing on the in the path of light or you're advancing down that path of darkness. And the longer you stay on that path, the darker it gets. The darker it gets. So you have uprightness there. You also have uprightness as the term in uh, 1519. The way of the lazy is a hedge of thorns, but the path of the upright is a highway. A hedge of thorns or a highway. Okay? Anyway, the upright. And if you want, I mean, wouldn't it be fun to take all these expressions and then mash them together into one monster title? The Christian way of life is the way of, you know, justice, uprightness, life, righteousness, glory. And we can we just keep adding to it. Every time we find another one, we just add it to the list. And then that is our way. That is our pathway, road, highway. Um, we, the problem is that we would have about 10 terms for path and we would have about 15 or 20 adjectives after that and what an unwieldy label we would uh, find ourselves with. That'd be kind of fun. The path of life. The path of life. And this too is interesting to me because we're given life when we're saved. We're given life when you're born again. Now you have this new life. And so it's this born again way of life and that puts you on a path. And, and the, the end goal of that path is not just simply to have life, but to experience it, to walk in that fullness and to be walking in intimacy with the Lord. Uh, and this is true both Old Testament and New Testament alike. And, uh, and so in Proverbs 2.19, um, in the warning about the strange woman and, and where she'll take you, it says, none who go to her return again, nor do they reach the paths of life. You, you uh, surround yourself with the wrong people. They're not, they're not promoting your Christian walk, I'll tell you that. Same thing in, uh, in 5.6, paths of life. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of shale. We're going to talk about shale today. She takes hold of it. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable. She does not know it. She does not know it. You know, the path of life is a stable walk. And uh, biblical Christianity especially, if you are consistent in your biblical Christianity, you should be the most stable people in the world. 
And that's because that's what we're provided. We're not tossed to and fro. We're not by waves of doctrine. We have stability as we're rooted and grounded in love. So that's Proverbs uh, 5, 6. Likewise, uh, Proverbs 10, 17. He is on the path of life who heeds instruction, but he who ignores reproof goes astray. Goes astray. So, I mean, you'll notice... Just because you're saved doesn't mean you're automatically on positive volition for the rest of your life. That you're automatically you know, going to be living in the Word of God. Or that you're automatically going to have the same hunger you've always had. Okay? We're praying hard for folks today that don't have the hunger they used to have. Okay? And that's evident. Does this mean they lose their salvation if they stop walking this path? No, of course not. Of course not. It means they put themselves on a different path and now they're subject to discipline. And it might even be it'll reach a point where God gives them over. And He gives them over to the sin of death or worse. He gives them over to um, not the sin of death but permanently banning them from maturity. And that's what we're going to talk about in Hebrews next week is to be banned from maturity. Ever learning and never coming to the knowledge of the truth. To be given over to lifelong immaturity and uh, eternal consequences. Talk about what are the eternal consequences and loss of reward for lifelong immaturity. Okay? Now that's Hebrews next Sunday. Uh, 1524. The last reference here to the path of life or paths of life. The path of life leads upward for the wise that he may keep away from Sheol below. Okay? Path of life. And it's interesting. It's not saying that you know, you're at risk of... It's, it's, it's a danger presently. That, that harlot was grabbing hold of Sheol presently. There's a present influence that Sheol has presently. If you're not heavenly minded, what are you? Okay? And what's the influence of Sheol? What's the influence of Abaddon? What's the influence? When you fall away from the faith, what are you paying attention to? Deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. Okay? And so there is a way in which Sheol reaches out and, and influences this world. And God wants us to not be on that path, not be subject to those influences. So sometimes the born-again way of life is called the path of justice or the path of uprightness or the path of life. Sometimes it's called the path of righteous or the, uh, the righteous or the path of righteousness. Okay? And some people think justice and righteousness are basically flip sides of the same coin, but they're different expressions. There's a difference between tzaddik, tzedakah, and uh, mishpat. They're, they're linked in a lot of poetry, but nevertheless, I think they are separate issues. Proverbs 2.20. I don't have any problem with it. I think Colonel Thiem took righteousness and justice and he put them together under the umbrella of holiness. And I like that. I like having holiness be the umbrella over top of righteousness and justice. And having um, you know, love as an umbrella over mercy and goodness. And uh, I don't know, other you know, truth as an umbrella over veracity and faithfulness. Things like that. Um, kind of a nice way to structure your essence, uh, essence box. Uh, but paths of righteousness in Proverbs 2.20. You will walk in the way of good men and keep to the paths of the righteous. See? Or maybe we, yeah, we might use this idiom sometimes. We talk about the straight and narrow, right? From the 
Jesus talked about the gate and the straight and the narrow versus the broad and the and the way there. Proverbs 4:18 more paths of the righteous. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter. See the longer you stay on it what happens? The brighter and brighter, the more light you have, the more you're in the Word of God, the more the light shines. It shines brighter and brighter until the full day. And I think we can read this verse on a personal basis. I think we can also read this verse on a dispensational basis in the sense that God's ongoing program is unfolding through the church age into the millennium into the fullness of time, which is the perfect day in, uh, in in a dispensational sense. Proverbs 8.20 I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. I should put that up in the justice verse. But anyway, both of them are here. The way of righteous, the paths of justice. Proverbs 8.20 belongs in both. Proverbs 12.28 In the way of righteousness is life and it's and in its pathway there is no death. It's like saying in him was light and, and, in, and there's no darkness at all. In the path, in the way of righteousness is life and in its pathway there is no death. Anyway, this is what we're dealing with. And this is what you fall away from. You fall away from the lifestyle. You fall away from the course, the path, everything that God has designed it for. And the author of Hebrews that's why he says it's so tragic. He says that, they, that he's convinced of the better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way, that it's the things that accompany salvation, it's the path, it's the course. And to walk away from that is there's no reason. It's just your hardness of heart, it's your, it's your apostasy, and that's not why he saved you. See, that's why, um, yeah, that's why we come under divine discipline. Now, Sheol and Abaddon, these are tremendous angelic studies. Sheol and Abaddon are tremendous angelic studies for both the place, if you think of it, uh, you know, spatially, think of it as a dimension, think of it as a place, a location, but also Abaddon is actually a being. Abaddon is a fallen angel. Abaddon is, uh, you guys make me smile every time. I'm going to smile every time I say a camera held up there. All right, I know, you're just taking pictures of the slide, I get that. I'm just nervous around cameras. All right, Sheol is a place. It's like heaven above, Sheol below. And so they're spoken of as dimensional localities. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and they're spoken of one is above, one is below. And you can't go to both, you're going to one or the other. And uh, and in, in respect to Old Testament cosmology, it's uh, significant too that Sheol had a compartment of comfort built in. That there was a place, uh, a refuge within Sheol that was called Abraham's bosom, it was called paradise, and that it was a place because in the Old Testament the saints could not go directly to heaven upon their physical death. Today, of course, we can. Today, we can go to heaven. When we die, we do go to heaven. But in the Old Testament, when a believer died, they didn't go to heaven, they went to Sheol, they went to the same place that the unbeliever went to, it's just that they were separated across a chasm with the righteous going to the place of comfort and the unrighteous going to the place of, of torments. Anyway, that's on into the New Testament. Let's look at uh, Job 26 
And we'll see some of these links between Sheol, the place, and Abaddon, the person, the fallen angel. Job 26. And Job is probably the earliest of all the books. It's, it's probably earlier than, than Genesis as far as its uh, poetry and as far as its composition. Job 26, 6. Backing up here to verse 5. Um, do I want to read verses 1 through 4? This is one of Job's responses, and his critics have been no help. He says uh, in verse 2, What a help you are to the weak, how you have saved the arm without strength, what counsel you have given to one without wisdom, what helpful insight you've abundantly provided. You know, it's just total sarcasm. None of this is true. He's just um, telling his friends they're useless. To whom have you uttered words and whose spirit was expressed through you? That's an interesting thing. Whose spirit was expressed through you? Because Eliphaz admitted that he was listening to voices, that there was a spirit that had passed before his face in his dream, and that he was listening to an angelic voice. And I think uh, Job's right on target here saying, it's not an elect angel you were listening to, it was a fallen angel you were listening to. Whose spirit was expressed to you? It wasn't the Holy Spirit, I'll tell you that. Then he says, the departed spirits tremble. The departed spirits tremble. The Rephaim, the shades, under the waters and their inhabitants. And so this is, this is some interesting language here, and it speaks of the extra-dimensional space. You know, you can't get in a submarine and go deep enough to reach, to reach the abyss, to reach Sheol. But isn't it interesting that the Bible uses the same word, abyss, for the dimensional place of, of the departed, as well as the ocean is called the abyss, right? The depths of the sea is called the abyss, and I find that interesting. Even language itself conveys these terms. Under the waters and their inhabitants. Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. And so we have both a place and a being, a person. Abaddon is the destroyer. He's the angel of the abyss that we see in Revelation. is given the key to unlock it, to flood this world of all the demons out of the abyss. Anyway, um, just jot some notes down and pay attention and and ponder it. We're not going to give a comprehensive angelology today, but uh, there are links between water and the abyss and links in terms of waterless places when the demon is cast out and he travels through waterless places and then he desires to be embodied again uh, in, uh, in in a being of water. Anyway pigs if you can't take humans, whatever, whatever. They want to be embodied. And I think the desire for that embodiment centers on the, the water that uh, can be leached from the, the person that they're embodying. He stretches out the north over empty space and hangs the earth on nothing. Why is the north significant? Well, because that's where the throne was, in the recesses of the north when Satan was lusting after a particular throne. It was, uh, I want to take my seat uh, uh, in the recesses of the north. Here stretches out the north. And uh, there's other aspects there. We get over to chapter 28 of Job. In verse 
and all the things. I think Job was an engineer, and I think Job uh, understood mining and the language here about mining silver and gold and how deep do you have to dig? And uh, he said, you know, can you dig deep enough to find wisdom? As it says in verse 12, where can wisdom be found? And uh, man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. So it's like the surface of the world is considered the land of the living. Start digging deep, you're departing, not only departing the surface of the earth, but you're leaving the realm of, of life. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. And so there's the depths of land and, and uh, water. And uh, get down to verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living, concealed from the birds of the sky. This too has angelic connotations. And badden and death say, with our ears we have heard report of it. If you want to listen to fallen angels, God understands its way and He knows its place. For He looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. See, heaven is extra dimensional and He's free to interact within space and time. And These things that we're talking about respect to God and creation. Anyway, abaddon and death say with our ears we have heard a report of it. The fallen angels are always ready to start dishing out information if uh, you know humans want to dabble with witchcraft and sorcery and get involved with divination and other things. Uh, the, the demons are ready to start preaching. They, they love to communicate at any time a human tries to, tries to reach them. How about, uh, so notice too, Abaddon and death. We're going to see death and Hades are thrown in the lake of fire at the great white throne. Still in Job, chapter 31. And uh, as he's proclaiming his innocence and he says, I haven't done these sins. My heart has not been enticed by a woman. I have not lurked at my neighbor's doorway. He says uh, in verse 11, that would be a lustful crime. Moreover, it would be an iniquity punishable by judges. So not only that, it's a crime, it's a sin before God. It would also be a crime before man. And then he'd be, you know, under double trouble, under divine discipline for the sin and under political discipline for the crime, legal trouble. Or it would be a fire that consumes to abaddon and would uproot all my increase. And so, you know, you live a life of sin, there's spiritual consequences. Live a life of crime, there's criminal consequences. And often both are lumped into a a double compound thing. Anyway, Abaddon is mentioned there. How about um, Psalm 88? I'm essentially giving you all the Abaddon references. I can't possibly give you all the Sheol references. There are just way too many. Abaddon is a demon, yeah, a fallen angel. The king of the fallen angels. The king of the, uh, of the demons, I should say. Sorry. Some pastors say fallen angels and demons are identical. Uh, in fact, one of the questions by email we'll be addressing tonight, uh, why do I not say that fallen angels and demons are identical? Why do I think they're different? Um, that'll be part of our Q&A tonight, or today if you want. Um, Abaddon is a name, of a, is a personal name, and Sheol is a locative name. 
Okay, they're both proper names. You know, places have names, people have names. Um, but Abaddon is a personal name, and Sheol is a locative name, a place name. Okay. Psalm eighty-eight, eleven. And, uh, you know, when you're lamenting and you're wondering how long is this going to last and, um, and it seems like I've got all these troubles and God's not listening or if He's listening, He's not answering. It says in verse 3, My soul has enough troubles. My life has drawn near to Sheol. He's so sorrowful that it's like the end of his physical life. I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. Another term for Sheol is the pit. I have become like a man without strength, forsaken among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more. They are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the lowest pit, in dark places in the depths. Your wrath has rested upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. How long does it take for these prayers to get answered, right? Will you perform wonders for the dead? (laughs) How am I going to say the hallelujah if I'm dead before the answer comes? Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? So if he's going to cross over out of the land of the living into the land of the dead, you know, is, is, he, going to, is he going to share his hallelujah praise with, uh, with the Rephaim, with the departed spirits? He says, I'd rather share my praise with my family, with my church family, with believers, with the saints. Will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in Abaddon or by Abaddon, okay? I think it'd be better translated by. Will uh, your wonders be made known in the darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Okay. Anyway, different descriptions here. If you ever study mythology, if you study Greek mythology in the land of Hades, and sometimes Hades is personified as a person, sometimes it's a realm. You get a lot of that stuff here. All right. That's Psalm 88. Uh, By the way, Proverbs 15 is only the first time that Abaddon is mentioned here. How about Proverbs 27, 11? Is that the one I was thinking of? 27, 20. Yeah, 27, 20. Of all the things that are not satisfied, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. We'll discuss that when we talk about the influence that Sheol has in this dimension, the uh, philosophies and the mindset and the, the, uh, the appetite that's never satisfied. When your God is your belly. All right, so that's Proverbs 27, 20, and of course Revelation 9, 11. The fifth trumpet. Remember we have seals and trumpets and bowls. Oh my. 
And uh, that's the outline for the Great Tribulation. And the fifth trumpet uh, it sounds, and a star from heaven which had fallen to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke went up out of the pit, smoke like of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by smoke out of the pit. I don't know what that's going to do to the air pollution of... <laughs> the environmentalists are going to have a tough time in the tribulation. They're going to... And the smoke came, out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth. Power was given to them as scorpions of the earth have power. And they were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And uh, boy, these demons are ferocious. And um, <laughs> they were not permitted to kill anyone, but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. And in those days men will seek death. They will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Imagine what a zombie apocalypse this is going to be like, you know. I can, I can just see people throwing themselves off of bridges and not dying. Throwing themselves in front of a train and not dying. And uh, the appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle on their heads appeared to be crowns like gold. Their faces were like the faces of men, the hair like the hair of women. The teeth were like the teeth of lions. They had breastplates. Anyway, you know, all this description here of these scorpion demons. And they have a king over them, the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon. And in the Greek, he has the name Apollyon. This is Apollo of Greek mythology. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming. We've got trumpet six and trumpet seven. On the way. Now, these studies are significant. Also, when you study angelology, you realize that there is uh, culpability and accountability before the Lord. That angels were the first of the moral realm. That they are culpable. They are accountable. That they have received their judgment already. That they are locked into their destinies, even though the sentence has not yet been executed upon the fallen angels that they're waiting to be thrown into the fire that has been prepared for the devil and his angels. They're still accountable. They're still culpable. And these things become important too. This is why humanity was created, why we are moral and culpable and accountable before the Lord. So sheep and goat judgment in Matthew 25. And uh, he separates them as the sheep are separated from the goats on the right and on the left. And uh, when he tells the goats to depart, where do they have to depart to? To the fire. He will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So they are culpable, they are accountable. And there is a judgment. Hebrews 2.2, the word spoken by angels proved unalterable. Every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The word spoken through angels, when their judgment day came, when, their, when the finality of their stewardship was, was brought together, they, they had to give a word. 
And one-third of them followed after Satan, and two-thirds of them followed after the Lord. And that word they gave, that choose you this day whom you will serve, locked them in forever. The word spoken through angels, Hebrews 2.2. 2, and they are accountable. Revelation 20, 10 through 15. And so um, here's the Gog Magog rebellion. And uh, the final protest, the final rebellion against Jesus Christ. And after Satan is released from his prison, he leads this final rebellion. And the Father judges it. Fire comes down out of heaven and devours them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone. See, hell is not as hot as the lake of fire. Hell is a temporary thing. People that are in hell today won't be there forever. They're going to be brought out to stand before the great white throne and then get thrown into the lake of fire. Hell is just a holding tank. It's the place of torments in that, in that realm of Sheol. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And look uh, what else here in verse 13. The sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. There's a personification here of Sheol and Hades and they stand before, uh, before the great white throne. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And so, man, you start studying these things and it's enough to make your head spin. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And so, you know, is it sad when an unbeliever dies and goes to hell? Yeah, it's sad. But it's a second death when they get resurrected out of hell, when death and Hades stand before the great white throne. And then they stand before the great white throne. Now why is that? Why can't hell be forever? Why can't God just send them to hell and be done with it? Right? Because every knee must confess and every, every, every I'm sorry, every tongue must confess, every knee must bend. That's why hell can't be forever. These unbelievers are going to come out of hell they're going to stand before the great white throne. They're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then they're going to be cast, not into hell again, into the lake of fire forever and ever. Amen. All right. Tremendous studies. Now, in the original point, I called them heartless, but I put it in quotes. Um, humanity in contrast to angelity. And for a while I was considering that maybe humans are the only realms that have a heart, but no, I have found that places where angels have hearts. And so uh, we're willing to, uh, to acknowledge that. <clears throat> God has a heart, but rarely are angelic beings said to have one. Rarely. Okay? The sons of Adam image God, and heart intentions are judged. The pinnacle of intimacy being a man after God's own heart. So when we're talking about heart issues, we're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, okay? Mind, soul, and strength. But it's to be a heart issue is our love. And anytime the Bible's talking about a heart, it's almost always in the human realm. Almost always in the human realm. And the heart love and the heart 
service and the heart conformity to be a man after God's own heart. That's the pinnacle of human intimacy. And even in the places where we have angels, we have a reference to the angelic heart, um, we don't have it in terms of intimacy with Yahweh. We don't have it in terms of anything comparable to the human experience. (coughs) Anyway, I, I do think that heart issues are human issues. I think that's a fair statement to make. Heart issues are human issues, not angelic issues. <coughs> All right, now, can we look through these verses in six minutes? Maybe. <coughs> we can try. <laughs> All right, Genesis 6 6. And many, many places, by the way, this is one out of many where the term is either lave or lavav, the Hebrew term for heart, and where it's God Himself or Yahweh or the Lord or somehow God is the one with the heart. So the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. Okay? Yahweh has a heart. But rarely are angelic beings said to have one. And only in a few places, and even there I think they're idiomatic. Job 1.8, Job 2.3, um, when he says, have you considered my servant Job? The, uh, the consideration, have you taken Job to heart? And, as, and like I say, it's idiomatic. Job 1.8. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. Have you taken Job to heart? That's the idiom. Eh, is that proof that angels have hearts? Because it's used in an idiomatic way? Have you considered my servant Job? Same thing in uh, Job 2.3. The Lord said to Satan, Have you taken Job to heart? Have you considered my servant Job? For there's no one like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man. Okay? The reason why even though they've been judged, that Satan and his angels have not yet been thrown into the lake of fire is because they have to learn. He's putting on display his grace and his mercy through the human realm. That's why there is humanity. Job 41.24 Can this prove to us that angels have hearts? Well, Leviathan had a heart. But Leviathan is the dragon embodiment of Satan. So, hmm, not so sure. Anyway, as you're reading through the dragon here and he's got limbs and he's got uh, teeth and he's got claws and he has wings and he breathes fire. Out of his mouth go burning torches in verse 19. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth. From a boiling as a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. This is Leviathan the dragon, the embodiment of Satan in the physical dimension. His neck lodges strength and dismay leaps before him. The folds of his flesh are joined together, firm on him and immovable. His heart is as hard as a stone, even as hard as a lower millstone. 
So if you're uh, King George or you're the knight trying to slay the dragon, uh, piercing through the heart is going to be tough given how hard that heart is, hard as a stone, assuming you can get through the chest scales to even reach the heart. Um, So does that prove angels have a heart? I don't know. Uh, Maybe the best one that is is Ezekiel 28.17. Ezekiel 28:17 and this one I think is undeniable. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And so this is the description of Satan and his fall that he was the anointed cherub. He was uh Hotham Takanoth we call him. He was the sealer of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. And this beautiful description of the gem-encrusted dragon here before his fall, it's a beautiful thing. You were the Christ cherub who covers, in verse 14, and I placed you there. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And then it describes his money changing. He was the first money lender in the temple. By the abundance of your trade you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. So, I think if I have to, if you put a gun to my head and say, do angels have hearts? I'd say based on this verse, yes. He had a heart and he corrupted it by reason of his beauty. All right. Now, the sons of Adam, <clears throat> yeah, no question that we have hearts. <clears throat> and the heart, the heart of man, God looks upon the heart. Heart intentions are what is judged. <clears throat> should, have, should have read verse 5 when I was reading Genesis 6 6. Uh, Genesis 6, 6 5 says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent, only evil continually. That's bad. <clears throat> That's a bad description there. The uh, Word of God is a critical judge of the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. It's heart intentions that are, that are judged. We, uh, we image God and we're to do so from the heart. And uh, the description of David here, the pinnacle of intimacy being a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14, 1 Kings 11, 4, and 1 Kings 15, 3. I'm just out of time, so you can look those up on your own. All right. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, thank you for the discipline that you provide. If we depart from the way of righteousness... If we depart, Father, from um, the, the path that you have called us to, then we expect, because you love us as, you, as our Father, you will discipline us, even if it means the sin and the death. Father, there is a path, and we want to stay on it. So thank you for Proverbs. Thank you for all these passages. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.